This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Imagine hopping on a train from Pueblo to Denver or Fort Collins to Colorado Springs. Voters may be asked as soon as next year to help fund a new passenger rail line along the entire Front Range and maybe into Wyoming and New Mexico someday. We have fielded a lot of questions from listeners about this story since our transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner broke the news last week. We're going to get to those questions shortly, but Nate's going to lay a little track for us first. Hi, Nathaniel. Hey, Ryan. Give us the basics. What's on the table here? So the state has been studying the potential for passenger rail along the Front Range for years at this point. And the latest vision from that work is basically this, a diesel locomotive propelled train that would operate in existing freight corridors. It would travel somewhere between 60 and 80 miles an hour on average. Fort Collins to Pueblo would take between two and a half and three hours. Okay, 60 and 80 miles an hour with diesel fueling this thing. I guess that doesn't mean a high-speed bullet train? That's not really where the conversation is right now. There are two basic options on the table. One would be quite robust. Trains are on their own tracks, trips at least every hour. That would cost up to $14 billion. The other option is a much more bare-bones line. It would only run a few times a day and would share tracks with freight trains. But it would also be a lot cheaper to build. As little as $2 billion. Okay, only $2 billion. How would this be paid for? So that's the news here. Uh, there's billions of dollars in potential funding out there. And Governor Jared Polis wants Colorado to grab it. There's federal money from the big infrastructure bill President Biden signed a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then there's us. The legislature created a special district in 2021 that has the power to ask voters for a tax increase to fund rail. Polis wants the district to do that next year. Well, speaking of the district, I think this is a good time to get some listener questions answered with Andy Karzian. He is general manager of the Front Range Passenger Rail District, which, if it is taxed in the way we've talked about, could become one of the largest governments in the state. Hi, Andy. Hi, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Is this your full-time job, and how many full-time employees does the district have? It is my full-time job, and we have one other full-time employee, although we're looking to staff up for a few more by the end of the year. Okay, but the district right now is you and one other person. Yes. Is your district going to put a funding measure on the ballot for Front Range Rail next year? We are going to put a ballot measure in front of voters. We don't know exactly when it is going to be. There is a lot of work that needs to be done prior to getting that onto the ballot. Doesn't mean that it can't be done before 24. But that's what we're looking at. Would 24 be a pretty optimistic timeline then? 24 would be an aggressive, optimistic aggressive, timeline. Yeah. Absolutely. In other words, you need to get your ducks in a row. That's right. So I need to go through a service development plan that's required by the Federal Rail Administration that basically says what our business plan is for moving this project forward. Hmm. You've got to prove it's viable, I guess. That's right. Even and before you go to voters. That's right. Yeah, so speaking of business case here, have you given any thought to this argument that I've heard a number of times? Why shouldn't the state spend its money on expanding I-25? So I think that continues to be an option, of course. And one of the reasons that we would build this passenger rail is because I-25, which it will run parallel to, is getting maxed out. As we all know, it's a difficult highway to drive. It closes often. 
Um, during the winter time, it can be dangerous. It's congested, and there's limited potential for expanding it into the future. I hear you saying I-25 has its drawbacks and its restrictions. Yes. When we are looking at going through Denver, there's only a limited amount of opportunity for expansion moving into the future. And so we're really looking towards a new opportunity and a new transportation option for the region as opposed to trying to pile in more cars into the existing interstate system. Do we know that there are enough people to make this worthwhile, this train? That is part of the ridership modeling that we're doing currently under the service development plan, and that will give us a sense of the ridership that we are looking at. We feel that there is a strong desire for the passenger rail to be built, and we believe the riders will be there when we want it. We're also looking at collaborating with RTD uh, north of Denver to maybe bring in some of the commuter rail options as part of the future for the rail as well. Ah, so Boulder County, uh, keep tuned. Andy, Nathaniel was talking about the difference between building a train that would share freight lines and one that would operate on its own rails. Is the governor leaning one way or another, do you know? That's a great question, and we are leaning towards the existing freight rail corridors that will reduce future costs but allow us to have a service up and running earlier than we would for a full build-out of a, say, a high-speed rail line. So we're looking more at the, the $2 billion option, not the 8 to $14 billion option at this point. That's right. So doing some upgrades on the existing freight rail lines as well as building what we call sidings to where one train can get out of the way of another train because we will be sharing that track with the freight rail. Well, Alan Cogill of Denver is skeptical. If the Colorado Front Range Railroad is going to be sharing freight tracks, will it be late, like the majority of the time the California Zephyr is coming through Denver, uh, run by Amtrak, which also shares freight tracks? Great question, and the answer will be no. The service that the listener is describing is a bit different than what we would be building out in this corridor. What we will be building is an intercity passenger rail system connecting the regional markets, not going nationally across the country. The time schedules will be more controlled and manageable with the freight rails within this region along these tracks than they are across multiple areas that create the delays for these cross-country Amtrak routes. Hmm. And so you're saying that it's going to be easier to coordinate a bunch of trains leaving at a bunch of different times than it is one that comes through only, you know, spottily? And don't get me wrong, Ryan. It's going to be a challenge to negotiate and, and manage all of these trains. But the goal will be to model out and take a look at some of the opportunities we have to share the freight traffic with BNSF north of town and with Union Pacific south of Denver. So Burlington Northern Santa Fe, BNSF, they kind of threw a wrench into the last big push for passenger rail here, RTD's Fast Tracks program. And they told RTD it would cost more than a half a billion dollars to use their piece of the rail line between Denver and Longmont. And that's a big reason why Boulder never got the rail that they were promised. Matt Frommer with the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, an environmental advocacy group, he has this question about that. What lessons have we learned from RTD's rail expansion project, and how are we applying them to the Front Range Rail project? A few lessons that we've learned is the importance of planning up front. 
Another lesson we learned is negotiating with the railroads early to try and get that level of detail as early as possible. Okay, put differently, you wouldn't go to the ballot without having negotiated with the private rail lines and presumably uh, having a figure in mind. That's absolutely correct. But RTD couldn't negotiate until they had gone to the ballot. So what does that look like for you? With the new creation of the Front Range Passenger Rail District and the availability of the billions of dollars at the federal level, plus some state matching dollars that have been set aside at the legislature, we have an opportunity now that wasn't available back in the fast tracks days. So you're saying that even without a tax that has been passed by voters, uh, you're going to try to present enough passenger information, passenger potential data, and the state and federal funding that's out there to say we've got a strong case. That's really our goal, is to try and provide a diverse approach towards funding this and not just rely on either a ballot measure and or federal funds. Still, though, I think a lot of people, especially in Boulder County, are going to be pretty hesitant if they're asked to fund another passenger rail line. Are there any sort of protections or things like that for the taxpayer that you're considering? Yes. We are looking at equity across the district as well as a value share back for the local governments and something we haven't talked about. That What's will, a value share back? Well, I don't know what that is. It's similar. To, for example, um, there are going to be different stations along the passenger rail line. One will likely be in Boulder. And that local station that the district works with the local governments to build has a value and a share back to the local government um, so that it's not just all the revenue going to either the district or the railroad. Okay, so Boulder gets something for whatever, the fares and the revenue if there's a coffee shop at that station. Boulder gets some of that change. That's the goal, Ryan. We really want to provide that value to the local governments because when it ultimately comes down to it, this is a local government project being built through many local governments along the front range. Uh-huh. So do we know... Andy, where exactly this rail line will be at this point? I understand there's a couple different options, especially north of Denver. You go out to Boulder and Longmont, you go straight up 25 or even swing out to 470. Do we know which is preferred and is it going to be nailed down before a vote? It will be nailed down before a vote. And the district board, probably by the end of the year, will have a, a strong sense on what route they will endorse. Uh, you identified the three routes that we're looking at. The strongest one is the one where we're where it connects the Northwest Rail route, and that goes up from Denver to Boulder, and it goes up to Longmont and continues up to Fort Collins. That one connects the major markets. It uses the existing freight rail lines, and we have opportunities to build upon the prior planning efforts. The route that goes up I-25 includes buying new land and possibly condemning new land to establish a, a new track and a new right-of-way, and that would be more expensive and more complex. And then the one that kind of juts out east of I-25, more towards DIA, is currently covered with the RTD system, and it doesn't connect as many major markets as identified by the federal government under that planning efforts that were currently underway. So Boulder's going to get the train in some form that did not come as a result of fast tracks. And we, 
we are hoping that we can leverage the vote from the past to help move this ballot measure ahead by collaborating with RTD to try and establish some commuter rail along that corridor too. Cost is the reason that Boulder doesn't have its commuter rail. Are you expecting the private rail lines to drop their prices? Or are you just saying we've got more bucks now? (laughs) I think the answer is we have access to more bucks now. Do we know how trains are going to get through Denver, through Union Station? Because it kind of dead ends there. It's an engineering challenge that will be part of the solution that we find for Front Range Rail. So, Andy, we've been talking about government funding, taxpayer funding for this proposed rail line along the Front Range but we're seeing new private lines open across the country in California and Florida. Is that an option here, a private operator? Yeah, like Brightline. A private operator is an option, and we will continue to look at all those options as part of that diverse funding approach. The public-private partnerships are absolutely a part of how we will be looking at this in the future. Oh, so it could be like E-470, the train. (laughs) It could be an E-470, the train. It could be a silver bullet train going up or we will be exploring oh, like all with opportunities. A sponsor. No, we will be looking at all opportunities to try and leverage financing models, funding opportunities, including public private partnerships. Okay, our last question comes from the high country. My name is Cheryl Lindstrom and I live in Edwards, which is west of Vale. I'm wondering if there's been any discussion in recent years of extending the trains from the western side of Denver up into the mountains in some capacity. We have on the district's board a member from the I-70 coalition who is there for this purpose to ensure that we continue to keep all options available. We would love to see mountain rail going up there. The challenges for mountain rail are more so than the ones that we're addressing right now for front range. You think about the elevation, the curves, the variety of different challenges going up into the mountains. So we are working with our I-70 partners to make sure that any future rail line that is built will include the technology and capacity to expand mountain rail into the future. It doesn't sound like you would go to the ballot, though, with any sort of specific high country proposal. That's correct. When will we know about a 2024 ballot measure? When do you have to make a decision about that? (laughs) That's a good question. We will have a much better sense as the legislative session gets underway, and we have conversations with the legislature and the governor as we move forward. So early next year, we'll have a better idea? Early next year, we'll have a better idea. Yeah, once session starts, I guess, because there's a legislative element to this. What year would you be embarrassed by <laughs> to have a train running? In other words, what's the, like, what's the latest that you want to see this front-range rail a reality? We are looking at, at the latest, 10 to 13 years in the future. If it's beyond that, we haven't done our job. If I haven't hopped on a train in 13 That's years, right. you're coming back on, Andy, and I'm shouting. You and I will be here 13 years from here. All right. Thank you both. Thank Thanks, you, Ryan. Ryan. I promise there'll be no shouting. That is Andy Karzian, general manager of the Front Range Passenger Rail District, joining me alongside CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner. There could be a train question on the ballot as soon as next year. Back after a break with a century of athletes and artists at Folsom Field. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. An heiress and a diplomat's wife, Mildred Genevieve Montague Kimball regularly rubbed shoulders with heads of states and royalty. Better known as Tweet Kimball, she switched from ball gowns to jeans and boots with ease to pursue an interest in livestock. She lived both lifestyles in Sedalia in the 50s. First, she set up home in a Scottish-style castle, then bought adjoining properties to form the sprawl she named Cherokee Ranch. Tweet happily got her hands in the muck and raised Santa Gertrudis beef cattle. Most ranchers said Colorado winters would kill them, but her animals won one blue ribbon after another. She became the first woman to serve on the National Western Stock Show's board, and she gathered one of the most eclectic art and book collections in the country. Tweet Kimball's land is now protected as a wildlife sanctuary. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Mint's Law Firm in Lakewood. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Former CU quarterback Darian Hagan remembers where he was the afternoon of November 4th, 1989. So do a lot of longtime Buffs fans. Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has Rome. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. That day, Hagan made the game-winning play to tailback J.J. Flanagan at Folsom Field. This year marks the Boulder Stadium's 100th anniversary, and Hagan says this place holds a special place in his heart. I reminisce a lot about the good times. Being on the field with my, my brothers, man, it, all of us had really good connections to each other. We all believed in each other. We all love each other. And you know, sit back and, you know, I, I miss those guys. You know, I miss being... I miss being 18, 19 years old. <laughs> Hagan recalls his freshman year breaking off a 75-yard run against the University of Texas or throwing for more passing yards in a game than the best quarterback in the country at the time. And Hagan did have a confession about that pitch back to J.J. Flanagan in 89. People, they always say, why did you pitch it? Because you could have scored a touchdown. And I, to make myself feel better, I always say, well, I pitched the ball to J.J. because... The year before, you know, we played Nebraska down in Nebraska, and J.J. was going in for a score, and he fumbled going in. So I was just giving him the the pitch so he could live in glory for the rest of his life. (laughs) All right, so what was the real reason? The real reason was I was tired. Former Boulder quarterback Darian Hagan, speaking with my colleague Anthony Cotton. Hagan now leads outreach at CU, and he'll be there Saturday when the university once again hosts rival Nebraska. So will the athletic department's historian and longtime sports information director, Dave Platty. Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing well. Saturday's game not only marks 100 years of Folsom Field, it's also the debut of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, himself an institution. Given your history with the Buffs, how does the buzz he's generating compare to other big moments at Folsom Field? Oh, you know, being a historian, you certainly want to protect the past. So (laughs) I don't know if you could ever say anything is the top of something or even when you try to pare things down to the proverbial Mount Rushmore of things. Uh, I think it's safe to say it's definitely one of the biggest moments. You can't say it's not. But uh, we've got some great time, great things through our history as well. But this is a... You know, history sometimes in today's world is what's happened in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> but uh, it's definitely big. It's definitely exciting. And, you know, one of the things that you point to is we never had 
anywhere close to a full house for a spring game before the top two crowds before were uh, 2008 coach McCartney had a challenge to try to fill Folsom for the spring game. We had 18,000 show up. And then before that it was 1989 when we had just under 14,000 show up to honor Salonesi who was diagnosed with cancer the month before. So to have 47,000 in there for a spring game, just because of the coach you hired, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that is impressive. Now you are loath to rank things, but you tried uh, compiling (laughs) what you consider the top 25 plays at Folsom Field. Let's listen to the winner. Here is the give to Salam. Salam to the outside. He's down to the 50. He's got 2,000. He's on his way. 20, 15, 10, 5. Did he get in? Yes. Touchdown. Touchdown, Rashad Salam. This place is coming apart. Rashad Salam, whole team going down. What a story. He goes over 2,000 by running 67 yards for a touchdown. So in the team's 1994 season finale against Iowa State, running back Rashawn Salam reached 2,000 yards in a single year, winning the Heisman Trophy as college football's best player. Why did that rise to number one for you? Well, you know, partly because the way he did it was at the time there had only been three running backs in an 11-game season to rush for 2,000 yards. And he was a front runner for the Heisman Trophy, he kind of separated himself from our two other candidates that year and Michael Westbrook and Cordell Stewart uh, late in the season. So he's sitting there with 1,796 yards going into that game. And <laughs> Bill McCartney was very un-Bill McCartney-like that game. Now, maybe he knew he was going to resign afterwards, but he actually had us keep track of Rashawn's yardage on the scoreboard. And I was like, isn't that going to motivate Iowa State? And he's like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, he's going to get, he's, he's get the 2,000. He's got to carry the ball 60 times. <laughs> and then we handed out, if you've seen videos of the clip, we handed out 10,000 placards with uh, that were goldenrod in color with the number 2,000 on them. So when Rashad went over 2,000, you see, you know, 10,000 10, of those being waved in the stands. And the last part of uh, Larry's radio play, which was you didn't play there, he said, what a golden moment. And when you think about it, it really was. And the, the play you ran earlier, I've got that number two, the pitch from Hagen to Flanagan for 70 yards. And, you know, Darian also kids me about something else on that play. We could have scored it two different ways. You know, the way the uh, the way you, you, you score the pitch and stuff, we gave all 70 yards to J.J. Flanagan. But we had the option to give Darian 40 and then J.J. 30. And the way that would have been with Darian, one carry for 40 yards and then Flanagan zero for 30, which is how you would score it. But we went ahead and just gave J.J. all the 70 because he did trail for 70 yards. And Darian's always like, I want my 40 yards. (laughs) Uh, I understand the idea of recording the biggest victories in program history started decades ago with former coach Bill McCartney. Tell us just briefly how that came about. We call them brick games, and the reason we call them brick games is because the time the team house, when you walked out the team house to the field, we had the traditional cinder blocks painted gold or white, you know, depending on part of the building. And everybody, I think, knows what a cinder block looks like from the side. I think it's like uh, 12 to 14 inches long, 6 inches in depth, so it looks like a big brick. So what McCartney wanted as a team would come in and out of practice every day and walk in the field, and take a look at the wall and they would see the biggest games in our history, the biggest wins. And I think there were 50, I created 49 wins in one tie, which we can explain in a sec why I would pick a tie. But that was the impetus behind selecting games in the brick game. And 
I actually just talked to CU about half an hour before I got on here, and they want to make the TCU game a brick game, so I'm going to have to write up a little blurb on that here shortly. Ah, okay. Do you want to tell us why you picked a tie? The tie was with Oklahoma in 1952. It was a 21-all tie. Oklahoma in the Big Seven between 1950 and 1959 was 47-0-1. That was their only blemish. And we also, we were kind of the team that always hassled Oklahoma that entire decade. And nobody was ever able to beat them, but we were able to tie them. So that's why that's a brick game. Let's get back to Folsom Field, which was carved out of a hillside. When was it (laughs) built? How much did it cost? Well, back in 1923, they were building Carlson Gym, and it was completed at 350000 So Carlson Gym is just to the west of where Folsom was. So we were playing on Gamble Field, and Gamble really, with the temporary bleachers and the stuff, was just a field on campus, really maxed out at about 9,000 in attendance, and, and you couldn't really squeeze any more people there because after the stands, they were just standing, and you couldn't see over people when you were three or four deep on the huh. sidelines. So they decided we really needed to big, build a bigger stadium, so they wound up carving it out of the hillside there on the northeast corner of campus. Uh, that's why we call it the, uh, the Stadium on the Hill. And it cost $65,000 back in 1924. And they were really proud because they paid off the bond in just seven years. And we always kid like $65,000 today might be able to remodel two bathrooms. (laughs) Yes, it's all relative, I suppose. Do you think uh, it has aged well? Yeah, there's certain parts of it that are old. Like anybody that goes into the men's room in the field house, there's still the trough which you know, I don't want to go into total details of the trough is, but <laughs> anybody over 40 or 50 knows, you yes. got to be kidding, there's still a trough. Okay. And, so, and you know, some of the, uh, some other parts are kind of old because it was built in 1924, but you know, we had major remodeling. We added the second deck in 1956 and 1967, we yanked out the track and put more seats down below. And when we added the suites and club seats in uh, 2003, the capacity reached a maximum of 53,750. And now it's dipped down to a little over 50,000 because we took out the uh, north bleachers and put in club seating and did the same thing with two sections on the east side oh. where those were, those were the worst seats in the house and always were the ones that didn't sell until the last minute. So now we made them the comfy kind of club seats you start seeing coming around the nation Yo. and you get waiters, waiters, waiters and waiter service to your seat. You know, the, the, all yeah, the indeed. amenities you would have if you're sitting at home. I, I wonder how its physical location might affect the sound, maybe similar to what you hear at Red Rocks. There have been any number of concerts at Folsom. The biggest was in 1977. More than 60,000 people came to hear Fleetwood Mac, topping a bill that included Bob Seger, John Sebastian, and Firefall, which got its start in Boulder. Uh, Five years later, The Who came to town. The Who crowd was a little over 60,000. And those were our two biggest attended shows. With the, we've had other famous shows. That probably two other most famous shows would be Simon and Garfunkel and then Paul McCartney. That show included John Cougar Mellencamp, John Cougar then, and there were reports of people throwing their shoes at him on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was one of the weirdest, maybe most eclectic mixes for a 
for a Sunday, which is what those concerts were called. Yeah. Uh, Jethro Tull was the middle act after John Cougar and then the Who. Yeah. <laughs> so John Cougar's playing and nobody is getting into his music. And he started after, after I think three or four songs, he said, I'm going to give you one more chance to get into my music. And I think he went into Jack and Diane and nobody was doing nobody still was getting into him and i believe he said f you colorado he didn't come back till night 17 years later 1999 when he went to red rocks he ignored the state we'll hope the reception for Dion sanders goes a little better than that dave platty there longtime sports information director for cu boulder he currently serves as historian for the athletic department Folsom field where the buffs play is 100 the team meets its rival there, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Saturday. The field, by the way, is named for legendary CU coach Frederick Folsom. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with a literary companion to your Colorado road trip. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. CPR Classical plays the great works all the time. Now, hear them nonstop every Saturday afternoon at 1. Music that stood the test of time. The works the world should know. I'm Jesse Jacobs. Join me for Essential Saturdays 1 to 5. You can ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Next week, I'll report from Grand Junction, hosting shows from our studio on Main Street. I just love a road trip, and I came across a new guide. It's not filled with hotels or restaurants. It's a literary road guide to Colorado, featuring excerpts organized by highways. So, for example, riding from along Highway 93, Golden to Boulder, or on the Western Slope, Highway 50 from Gunnison to Delta. Peter Anderson put together this collection called Reading Colorado. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Uh, We must, must, must start with an excerpt from the late, great science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin, winner of eight Hugos, six Nebulas. What is the piece and what is the place? The piece is an excerpt from City of Illusions by Ursula Le Guin, and the place is the Black Canyon National Park. She was inspired by Black Canyon because she had come out there on a road trip in the 1950s with her children, and they, in the midst of her camp chores, had disappeared out towards the rim of the canyon. Uh, she discovered later that they were safe, oh. thank goodness. But it definitely was a moment of panic there, and she never forgot it. And I think that's why later on she used that image of the Black Canyon for this city called Estoc, which spanned the canyon and was quite spectacular. And so the excerpt in the book is a description of that fictional city that she conjured up in her imagination. Oh, goodness, what a what a thing to build a community you know, across a canyon. So why don't we hear the excerpt? Sure, sure. 
The city of the lords of earth was built on the two rims of a canyon, a tremendous cleft through the mountains, narrow, fantastic, its black walls striped with green plunging terrifically down half a mile to the silver tinsel strip of a river in the shadowy depths. On the very edges of the facing cliffs, the towers of the city jutted up, hardly based on earth at all, linked across the chasm by delicate bridge spans. Towers, roadways, and bridges ceased, and the wall closed the city off again, just before a vertiginous bend of the canyon. As Tok gave no sense of history, of reaching back in time and out in space, though it had ruled the world for a millennium. Estoc was self-contained, self-nourished, rootless, yet it was wonderful, like a carved jewel fallen in the vast wilderness of the earth. Wonderful, timeless, alien. Oh gosh, I love the adjective vertiginous, which I think captures the Black Canyon so well. Don't you think, Peter? Absolutely. You're an essayist, a poet, the founder of the Crestone Poetry Festival. There must have come a point when you thought there is enough writing, good writing, about Colorado places that I can put something like this together. But I wonder if you had doubts. Not really. I think Colorado, you know, the literature of Colorado is plentiful and great and diverse and exciting. And I think of all the Western states, Colorado's literature is as varied and as interesting as any. Uh, so there, was, there were never any doubts in my mind that one could put together a collection of Colorado literature. Hmm. Uh, I guess the only doubt in my mind was, you know, how long it would take to do it and, uh, you know, what sorts of, of obstacles I might run into along the way. Well, I mean, there's a lot of research to do to find out that Ursula Le Guin thought she lost her child and that you, I suppose, have to confirm that that inspired this city across a canyon, you know? Well, you know, you, you spend a whole day in a university library, Ryan, and there's no telling what's going to turn up. And <laughs> that was one of those days. It was up in the Greeley Library, and I, I ran across a, an obscure journal having to do with science fiction. And there was an article about uh, science fiction stories set in Colorado, and that's where that came from. But I thought it was, it was neat to, to just kind of locate that story in a particular place in Colorado. Yeah, what a fine... Was there a piece of writing you were totally ignorant of before embarking on this literary road guide? Many, many. You know, I, did, I knew the literature of Colorado pretty well from having, having lived here since the 70s, but there were definitely some surprises along the way. For example, I didn't know, I, I knew of the poetry of Bruce Kiskadon, who is sort of the grandfather of cowboy poetry, but I didn't know that he had lived out east of Trinidad, between Trinidad and Springfield, and had started his cowboying career out in that neck of the woods. Oh, would you like to read something from him? Oh, absolutely. Bruce Kiskadon was, as I said, one of the grandfathers of the tradition of cowboy poetry. And um, he was a working cowboy and took time to write down a few lines the thing I really enjoy about his poetry uh, is that he wrote with uh, a sense of the grittiness of, of the cowboy life, but he also wrote with a great sense of humor. Uh, both of those things, I think, show up in this short poem called Drinking Water. Uh -huh. When a feller comes to ponder a tank, it is better to ride out a ways from the bank 
for the water is clearer out there as a rule, and besides it is deep and a little more cool. And out toward deep water, you notice somehow, you miss a whole lot of that flavor of cow. You can dip up a drink with the brim of your hat, and water makes pretty good drinking at that. You maybe spill some down the front of your shirt, but any old waddy knows that doesn't hurt. There may be some bugs and a couple insects, but it all goes the same down a cowpuncher's neck. I know there's plenty of folks would explain why such water had ought to be filtered or strained. Such people as that never suffered from thirst, or they'd think of it later and drink it down first. <laughs> when you are thirsty enough, it's okay if there's a fly in the water, I guess. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In the Highway 160 section, so ridings from Durango to Toyak, you highlight the work of Regina Lopez White Skunk. Um, maybe set an excerpt up for us and, and then read it? Well, Regina Lopez White Skunk is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. She's many things. She's a grandmother, an activist, and a writer. And in this essay, she talks about the act of walking as a form of prayer. Mm. She writes this. I hike into the canyons to see the rocks and the stories from long ago. I stop and feel saddened when I see bullet holes, words scratched in places that show disrespect for the story, a story that tells me of the trails and waterways of the surrounding landscapes. I go into these spaces to listen to the trees sing to me and ease my restlessness, to seek a sense of healing from within. The earth is my connection to the knowledge of the land and the stories that are whispered in the gentle winds. I have prepared for ceremony and prayer. I have taken off my shoes. I have walked barefoot, connecting with our mother earth, seeking knowledge, strength, and grace. She feels and knows my steps, for I have tread on her before in prayer. I kneel down beneath a large cedar tree, allowing for the hundred years of wisdom to be communicated in a way no one will ever understand. Mm. I think of walks as meditation, and I think that captures that very well. Absolutely. I also think of the fact that, as so many tribes were, before the United States government boxed them in, uh, they, they were nomadic. They moved. They walked. Absolutely. And the territory for the Utes kept getting smaller and smaller, you know, from the, almost the entire state of Colorado and into Utah to half the state to uh, a small fraction of the Western Slope territories to, you know, what is currently the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation and the Ute Reservation down by Ignacio, Southern Ute Reservation. We are hearing from Peter Anderson, the man behind a new literary road guide called Reading Colorado. When we come back, Mark Twain's take on the South Platte River. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Laura Hallman, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. Handing over the title to my car was bittersweet because I knew it was going to a very great cause, but it was also the only car that I had ever known. I had often heard a lot of testimonials for people that donated their cars, and I feel like kind of this is a community that I'm now a part of, and it feels really wonderful. It's incredibly easy to donate your car at CPR.org. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Next week is a road trip for our show. I'll report from the Western Slope. And before I see Denver in my rearview mirror, I'm chatting with poet Peter Anderson. He's put together a literary road guide called Reading Colorado. Big names in this collection, Jack Kerouac, Upton Sinclair, Stephen King, Willa Cather, Dalton Trumbo, and Zane Gray. But Peter, Mark Twain? Well, he just barely, barely dipped into Colorado, Ryan, on his way out to Carson City, Nevada, when he uh, was having all the experiences that he would put into the book Roughing It. And that was in the early 1860s. There was a, a stage station out in what came to be known as Julesburg. Aha. Uh-huh. That he spent a few days in that area. Should we hear Mark Twain writing about Colorado? Which, like, as someone who oh. used to live in Missouri, I just can't imagine Mark Twain that far from a river. <laughs> well, that's interesting that you should bring that up because, you know, you can imagine Mark Twain coming from the Mississippi when he saw, you know, what passes for a river out in Colorado. <laughs> he wasn't too impressed. So this is what he wrote about the South Platte. We came to the shallow, yellow, muddy South Platte with its low banks and its scattering flat sandbars and pygmy islands, a melancholy stream straggling through the center of the enormous flat plain and only saved for being impossible to find with the naked eye by its sentinel rank of scattering trees standing on either bank. The Platte was up, they said, which made me wish I could see it when it was down, if it could look any sicker and sorrier. They said it was a dangerous stream to cross now because its quicksands were liable to swallow up horses, coach, and passengers if an attempt was made to ford it. But the males had to go, and we made the attempt. Once or twice in midstream, the wheels sunk into the yielding sands so threateningly that we half believed we had dreaded and avoided the sea all our lives to be shipwrecked in a mud wagon in the middle of a desert at last. Yeah, that's interesting, because Westerners would see the South Platte and rejoice. <laughs> right, yes, absolutely. From a distance, just seeing the line of trees and like, oh, thank God, there's water up ahead, you know. Is there a certain portion of the state you couldn't find riding for? Not really. Uh, there were areas of the state that, uh, you know, I was more familiar with literature than others, places where I had lived, like Colorado Springs and Buena Vista, uh, San Luis Valley, Four Corners down by Durango and Mancos. I knew those areas pretty well. So areas like the northwestern corner of the state, I had to dig a little bit more. I'd been up through there, but I hadn't spent a lot of time, say, up around Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, or for that matter, out in eastern Colorado. You know, it's amazing. You can spend... 40-some-odd years in Colorado and, and kind of hunker down in the mountains and, and really have very little awareness of the eastern part of the state, which is almost half of the state. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of great country out there, a lot of amazing landscapes, and a lot of great literature, too. Yeah, you celebrate plenty of works from the Plains. You want to pick one and tell us about it? Yeah, I'd like to read you a, a piece by a woman that wasn't necessarily a Plains dweller. She actually lived up in Steamboat Springs. Hmm. But a wonderful writer who I discovered at the Steamboat Springs Library, her name is Sariva Towler, 
And she has a book called The Boys at the Bar, Antics of a Vanishing Breed of Cowboys and Hellions. <laughs> uh, I'm sure people in Steamboat know about Sariva and also possibly past readers of the Denver Post where she wrote periodically. But I love this piece. She was clearly, even though she was a dweller in, in the mountains, she liked to travel and she has this beautiful piece of advice for road trippers in her book. She says, travel slowly. Explore a country where a community is judged by the size of its grain elevator, and guys not only know what sorghum is, they keep close tabs on its market price. Search for a place where everyone can recite the 4-H pledge. Hmm. Read every historic marker, eat at the greasy spoon, and visit with someone driving a tractor. In other words, keep an eye out for places like Ray, Colorado. And this is a place that she wrote about focusing on the um, mating habits of the prairie chicken. And, and as in a lot of her writing, she, she does so with a great sense of humor. She writes, Nobody says I love you more convincingly than a prairie chicken. Mockingbirds sing, peacocks strut, bowerbirds build elaborate nests, egrets grow feathers, but prairie chickens do it best. They dance and croon at dawn and dusk, they lean forward, puff up their throat and ear feathers, drop their wings and fan their tails. The sound of air rushing from their inflated, bright orange neck sacks makes a booming sound as they stomp their feet and strut around in circles, not unlike a Bronco quarterback after a touchdown. <laughs> the best place to watch the mating dance of greater prairie chickens is in the grassy sandhills north of Ray, where 80% of Colorado's 10,000 chickens hang out near the Kansas and Nebraska state lines. The numbers come close to matching the people population in Yuma County, which issued only 73 marriage licenses last year, suggesting that prairie chickens may have far more fun courting in the cornfields <laughs> than do the locals. <laughs> Their eerie sounds and aerial leaps are generating economic development for the Ray Chamber of Commerce and East Yuma County Historical Society that, from mid-March until mid-May, Call voyeurs to the booming grounds. There, squinting into the cold and dark, bird watchers and snoops can spy on roosters and hens cavorting on the lek under the educated eyes of Division of Wildlife Yentas. I love when something is both journalistic and poetic, and she blends the two brilliantly. Just brilliantly. Great voice. Great yeah, voice. That's voice. right. A lot of voice in her writing. Yeah. Some very small towns make appearances in this collection. I was thrilled to see Hartzell near Salida. Antonito in the San Luis Valley makes an appearance. Laporte in northern Colorado. Are places like these as much characters as they are settings for characters? Oh, I think so. Every, every town kind of has a feel to it. And you talk to somebody like uh, Aaron Abeta down in Antonito, and you realize how many stories are embedded in that landscape. And I think the same is true for almost any small town. You know, if you dig around for a while, you're going to find some, some really interesting stories. It doesn't matter, you know, how small the population is. And I think it's clear in the book from reading the entries from towns like Walden and Antonito, like you say, and Hartzell, that, you know, there, there's some really rich stuff that's um, just kind of a part of the landscape out there. And if you're in Grand Junction and you're Dalton Trumbo, well, you, you get positively 
gossip-laden rumor mill stuff about, about your neighbors. <laughs> well, you know, apparently when Dalton Trumbo came out with Shale City, which was his, his novel roughly based on Grand Junction, he, was, he wasn't very popular with yeah. uh, most of the residents of Junction. Although the excerpt that I included in the book uh, also demonstrates that despite the gossip and the things that he learned as a cub reporter on the Grand Junction Sentinel, he was also very fond of this place, and I think it comes through in his description of downtown Grand Junction at sunset. Oh, give it to us before we go. Sure. Main Street took on pleasant neighborly animation with the six o'clock closing of its stores. Merchants lingered before their stores, gossiping with last-minute customers. Shoppers with bags suspended limply over their arms sauntered homeward through a dusty red haze. Boys and girls strolled together or chattered shrilly in little groups. Children on roller skates dodged breathlessly in and out of recessed store entrances, pursued by excited mongrel dogs. The evening carried a faint, cool smell of sweet clover from the river. It was the good time of day, the carnival time of day, the restful time of day. There was no more work to be done, and soon the earth would begin to cool. Mm. It's so exciting when it starts to cool down after a hot day in Grand Junction. Oh my gosh, yes indeed. About as welcome a sensation as I can think of. Peter, yeah. thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely, Ryan, thank you. It's been a, been a great delight. Peter Anderson compiled a literary road guide called Reading Colorado. It got me even more excited for my reporting trip to Grand Junction next week. We'll broadcast from our studio on Main Street. And on Wednesday, the 13th, you can attend a taping of our show on the Colorado Mesa campus. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Again, next Wednesday in Grand Junction, CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks for spending time with us. And thanks to these road warriors. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.